plan now is I'll talk a little bit about the approach to gathering the data, I suppose, and the project. And then Karen will um, relay some of our preliminary findings. And then we'll move on to writing down some questions to then ask again sort of all of us at the end. So it was an SRHE Member Research Award in 2015 and it was for 10,000 which was fantastic because it enabled us to then pay someone to transcribe the interviews before we checked them so we, we didn't have to transcribe them ourselves um, and also to attend um, conferences and to set up events such as this. The idea for it kind of grew from our own interest in policy. Uh, qualifications frameworks is something that we've worked on um, over a number of years. Um, and also Karen's worked a lot on the development of institutional policy and Scott's worked on policy in, in, in industrial contexts. I've been more looking at kind of impact of policy and with all of us on qualifications frameworks. What we found we were moving towards was to try and find out more about the policy making process. That was our sort of motivation and the role that higher education and higher education researchers play in that. And these were the some of the key underpinning questions in the bid. What roles does or should higher education research play in policy making? what institutions act as an ideas inform and shape higher education policy and what evidence is sought by these institutions and actors to frame and legitimize ideas we started with sort of a documentary we've got a thingy on this yeah it's good. i won't try and figure that out <laughs> starting with like a documentary evidence a genre analysis Karen did of a number of policies and we all read through quite carefully the um the, the, what was then the green paper for the TEF and we looked at that and we were wondering at the time do we do we go along with this or do we look at policy more generally and we went for policy more generally but also towards the end asked our different groups about the about the TEF and the green paper and the interview analysis is as I say just starting now we're at the stage where the interviews are all completed and all transcribed and have been checked and now we've, we've got some preliminary findings which we're hoping to translate, we, 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 we hope to improve through research and the extent to which these hopes are translated in policy and why, into reality, sorry, by, by <coughs> policy makers. Now, I'm in my head thinking, how does this evidence compare the evidence that policymakers might like. I'm just thinking of that from what we were listening to this morning. Um, so this is what we did. 12 higher education researchers, 8 higher education policymakers and 6 funders. But there's this complex blurring of boundaries. The interviews were semi-structured. Some were like 75 minutes. Some were about 40 minutes. Um, policy makers didn't really find that term necessarily reflecting the identity that the people that we spoke to perceived themselves to have. Sometimes it was influencers. Funders not always felt that way, maybe commissioners. 
and sometimes there would be different roles that the researchers would play. They, they would kind of have different hats. So although we originally went in with these kind of categorized uh, groups, we found that not only did they merge, but also we found when we were speaking to people that they weren't the only people in the game of policymaking. There were a lot more other people, the media, intermediaries, other other bodies, which, which came through when we were speaking to people. And we apologise if anybody anybody's here and we're not representing them as being involved in the process. They very much are. And now I'm going to hand over to Karen and she's going to talk about the so where we are with the preliminary findings. So we gave ourselves the same question that we gave our panel members um, this morning as well, which was one of our research questions. What role does higher education play in higher education policy making? And um, I'm going to tell a story of our preliminary results so far, but it's a bit of a it depends, which is, you know, probably not what policymakers want to hear, really. It depends, and it depends on what you know, how you say it, who you know, where you are, and who you are. Um, before I talk through all of those things, I feel that I really have to explain who the you is <laughs> for various reasons. One is because William Locke is a very good critical friend and asked me that question when I shared um, our ideas about what we we're going to discuss this morning. And secondly, because how could I not when Steve spent quite a bit of time talking about who the we is. So for, for, for the purposes of this, um, this bit of the afternoon, the you here is, is high, that higher education researchers, I mean we were funded by the Society for Higher Education Research so it makes sense to us that we're kind of talking about that community um, as if that is a single community but anyway that's how we're, that's who we're talking about. Um, as Scott talked about um, just before we had our lunch we are aware that there are other people within higher education who are very influential in the policy making um, process, so VCs for example, um, but not for their research, and research was important for us um, in what we're, you know, in, in, this, in this project. So if it's higher education research, why have I put you and not it? Well, I hope that will come through, actually, because I think one of the things that we found is that although the research outputs are important, it seems to us, at least, that the, the people who produce that research are extremely important and I will lead to that as we go through. So I'm going to tell you a story of where we are so far. Um, it's not finished by any means. Are these kind of research projects ever finished? I'm not sure. But anyway, this is where we are and hopefully um, some of it will resonate with what happened this morning. So it depends on what you know. So firstly, for higher education research to have an impact on policy, it needs to have something to say. But what it has to say has to be of relevance at that time to policymakers. So it has to be on the policymakers' agendas. So what the policymakers referred to as an alignment of ideas or finding fertile ground or striking chord. Now sometimes researchers can carry out work and they're convinced that it is going to be of interest to policymakers only to find that policymakers are not interested at all. As one higher education funder said, 
You might have the most beautifully articulated research findings, beautiful high quality study and it will have no, no impact at all because that's not what the government wants to do. Or to put it more bluntly, as one policymaker did, independent evidence only works when it confirms what ministers want. So as Julie outlined this morning, higher education research amongst other, other evidence can be used at, at different stages of the policy process and for very different purposes. So it can be used to support a problem or an idea or support a solution. It can be used in the process of formulating or implementing ideas and it can be used um, in the process of uh, negotiation to build influence. Higher education researchers can put in responses to consultations and a lot of them that we spoke to did that draw on their research or they can be involved in the evaluation of policy impact and this is an area where policymakers felt historically not enough had been done. The higher education researchers felt however that the best stage to target in terms of influence was right at the beginning, so in the development of the idea and this was supported by the policymakers who felt that academics could and should play a more powerful role in the early stages of policy making. So there is an opportunity there to shape and influence policy via the objective and independent thinking, which is what, as it was mentioned this morning, what is deemed the academic research can bring. So research is only one area from which policy ideas flow. So there are a myriad of others. Ideas that underpin policy making don't come out of vacuum. Policy making rarely starts from absolute zero, as one of our interviews said. Previous and ongoing policy government decisions influence things like funding, regulation, interventions, which in turn constrain and or frame um, emerging ideas. Higher education policy also inter interconnects strongly with other forms of um, public policy, so immigration policy, social mobility, and can be on the radar of other government departments, such as the Cabinet Office or the Treasury, and no longer simply the domain of departments more closely associated with higher education. And also, global trends can't be ignored either. They are also influential in, in policy making. Equally, the policymakers um, spoke of ideas emanate, emanating from manifestos, which we talked about this morning, government departments, non-governmental bodies, think tanks, mission groups, individual ministers, special advisors, representative bodies, other stakeholders, changes in context, as well as academics and their research. So research ideas will always need to compete against all of these other ideas and it's difficult to predict, predict whose ideas will be privileged at which point in the policy development process. However, some policy uh, makers did contend that some institutions have greater power and thus more influence, but that does change as well. So we'll talk a little bit later about research evidence can be communicated so that policymakers are at least aware of it. Um, but before then, I think there's more to say about what you know and the nature of evidence that you have. So there's no shortage of institutions and actors that provide evidence and research evidence for policy making. So the think tanks, membership organisations, statistic agencies, consultants and the governments themselves, whose analysts also carry out research. Our interviews suggested, and it was supported this morning um, by the talks from our panel, that pol policy makers predominantly engage with quantitative research um, in fact, policymakers recognise that there's already an existing big data set for higher education. Um, policymaker noting provides you with a very detailed, powerful evidence base. The researchers recognise this preference for large-scale quantitative pro projects and one advice you're probably better off on the whole doing quantitative research because politicians like numbers. It's scale and it's the it's trust in numbers. Though, as we saw this morning, numbers can be used to say different things. <laughs> so it's 
you know, is that trust um, misguided sometimes? Policy making is about finding answers, and the clearer cut the, the research findings, the more useful it appears more policymakers find them. And this is potentially an issue within higher education research. And um, as Helen said this morning, there is a, a general tendency towards smaller scale qualitative research. And qualitative research is, is perceived to be more complicated, it's, it's perceived to be messier, it creates more questions than answers. That said, qualitative research can and does impact on policy. People talk to us about that. And in an ideal world, both methodological approaches would be employed. Um, because actually, what was required, irrespective of methodology, was evidence that was specific, reliable, clear, and demonstrating potential impact. Another area that um, we felt could influence the use of higher education research and policy making is the researchers' own understanding of why they were carrying out the research in the first place. So for some researchers, engagement with policy-focused research is, is about income. Higher education researchers are sometimes commissioned to do research for policy, um, commissioned research is competitively bid for, and seeks to answer a specific question, often with a predefined data collection method. Equally, there are um, higher education researchers who do research as consultancy. Um, and here there can be a, a blurring of roles as well, a bit like our categories of interviewee. Um, a defining characteristic of academic researchers is their legitimacy, which comes through their objectivity and independence. But consultancy and commissioned um, research, do, do they provide the same objective and independent research as research designed for academic purposes? It's a question for us to think about. For higher education researchers, funding is often essential for, for research to be undertaken. Now, funders are given money by charities or government often with the understanding that they will fund research of value. Um, the research funders that we spoke to often didn't feel that impact on policy was the main reason for funding a piece of research and that there were other equally valuable impacts, so impact on practice, impact on individuals in terms of their development or impact on the knowledge base. If researchers um, see research as um, an academic interest or a collective endeavour, developing understanding, extending knowledge, then impact on policy might well be one of many um, other outcomes from the research. And the question is the extent to which higher education researchers should be finding, uh, seeking to find resonance between their own research ideas and the ideas of others, or is it a case of waiting for those in the policy field to look out and link into the researchers' ideas. So while there were those in the research sample who advocated pursuing research um, areas just based on genuine research interests, there were also those who did consciously keep an ear to the ground in order to sense emerging policy ideas and, and um, formulate their research around those. This can be a risky strategy um, because it's often difficult to predict who will be the winner on Grand National Day. So do you go on the nose or do you opt for an each way bet? And I think the ref, with its impact, uh, with its emphasis on impact, is muddying the water even further for those in the academic community, muddling um, short-term gains with long-term endeavour. And the case for impact or impact case studies, more specifically, is something we're going to come back to later. I'm going to move now from what you know onto how you say it. Now, if higher education has got something to say that might be of use to policymakers, then they need to know about it. 
I mean, we've heard already policymakers are unlikely to read academic articles. They often don't have access to the publications that the research appears in. And as an aside, this is in contrast to the government's own commitment that any research they commission should be published in a timely fashion and openly accessible. So there is, a, there is an issue there. So higher education researchers need to find other forms of communication. And one powerful way in which policymakers can hear about research is if that research is seen to be um, influencing public opinion. Overwhelmingly, and Steve talked about this, the higher education researchers recognise the importance of the media as an intermediary between researchers and policymakers, and an effective way of getting ideas into the public psyche. There's then a necessity for researchers to be both media savvy and media active. And interviewees did talk about preparing press releases when a new um, articles were published, writing articles for the mainstream press, specialised press, blogs, both personal and, um, and group blogs. And they talked about making comments to journalists, appearing on TV and the radio. So policymaker engagement was just another aspect of wider public engagement with research ideas. In order to make policy messages digestible for both the media and policymakers, some translation work needs to be done. So whether it's writing copy for the press or drafting a report on research for policymaker, the key messages coming from the research um, need to be highlighted and clearly articulated. I think it's Steve's point, isn't it, about almost forgetting your academic training. So policymakers and journalists alike, our interviews felt like headlines, bullet points, infographics, jargon-free prose, something easy, easy to read. Executive summaries, extremely important and often the only part of a report that will be read. And unlike academic writing, there's really the need to provide the theoretical underpinnings of the study, nor the detail of the methodological approach adopted. And this doesn't mean that neither theory nor methodology are considered by the researcher, but rather, as a higher education research funder noted, practical applied research has got to be grounded in theoretical concepts, but it's what you choose to communicate, I suppose. <coughs> So writing for these different communities requires a certain <coughs> bilingualism, the ability to recast research findings for different audiences. And it has to be noted, though, uh, any sharing of research into the, uh, into the wider community does run the risk of those ideas being taken on and used in ways that you might well not have imagined. So those ideas can take on a life of their own, as one researcher recognised. They said, what happens is your idea that you've perfected over many years gets distorted and turns into something else and becomes nothing that you know. It's like the adaptation of a book into a film. It just becomes something completely different. If you engage with policymakers or practitioners, that's what you should expect. So how you say it and then who you know. It's probably not fair to say it's an area that it's not what you know, it's who you know, because we've already <coughs> said relevant ideas from research are important. However, it does appear that having access to powerful policy networks is crucial if higher education research is to have an impact on, on policy making. As noticed above, influencing public opinion can make a higher education researcher and their research known. Um, more later uh, on this emphasis on the researcher rather than the research output. Now, access to networks can be the result of a strategic approach to self-promotion through a well-developed online profile, as one researcher recognised. I think basically, uh, they said, government ministers' assistants, uh, I think basically what mini government ministers' assistants do is they type something into Google. If you've written three things online about a policy issue and your name appears at the top of the list, they will glance at your stuff and perhaps even contact you. 
Self-promotion, as well as having an online presence, also includes meeting people, so attending conferences, events with policymakers. Um, it's about being seen and becoming known. So one policymaker, however, was clear to outline it's unfair for researchers to think that they should be the only ones reaching out in that way. They said these policy influencers, if they want to be doing a good job, they should be going out of their way to seek opportunities to learn about what research is going on, what research evidence exists. But when you're on the policymakers' uh, radars, there are different levels of access that are granted to the policy network. So engagement can either be through informal or formal channels. So the more formal includes invitations to sit on committees, attend meetings, join steering groups, provide evidence, present at conferences. And the policymakers and researchers alike spoke of the formal involvement of influential higher education researchers in opportunities such as these. Equally, um, the informal mechanisms can be extremely powerful. So almost um, universally across the policymaker interviews, there was consensus that policy making is largely done via um, informal communication channels. So the domination of such communication and its advantages seem to be that the informal channels allowed an easy way to test the water regarding ideas and positions, a means to develop and influence ideas, a way to seek and understand um, opinion, gaining a heads up on what's on the horizon, and it's also argued to deliver better, better policy by its control. However, there are some concerns around this more informal approach. Policy developed this way tends to be risk-averse. Ideas get watered down as they pass through the informal uh, communication channels via kind of compromises and trade-offs. And informal networks are not wholly representative of all stakeholders. And these networks are inevitably, I guess, controlled by the most powerful so there is a sense that uh, there has been a movement away from the formal to the more informal networks and that this was suggested as a result of the introduction, amongst other things, of the Freedom of Information Act. So transparency in the whole process, policy making process it seems, is, is not something considered wholly desirable. Indeed there was a sense of mystery actually, clo cloaking the reason for choosing one researcher over another. Some researchers were generally, gen genuinely not sure why they'd been invited in. Never quite sure why, where these things come from. Someone talked to someone who talked to someone, I guess. And another uh, described being checked out by a civil servant and then being invited to meetings. A certain level of secrecy and opaqueness surrounded access. Once in, many, many recognised that their time there might well be limited. They were likely to be called upon for a period of time and then forgotten as the agenda moves on. Interviewees spoke about this, spoke about this with a sense of inevitability and a realisation that you should reap what you could from the situation. So I'm in at the moment. I'm in a moment where you know currently people are interested in what I've got to say. That will last for a certain limited amount of time. And the emphasis on time here is important, as one thing that does seem to define the two communities is a different perception of time and. Julie talked about this this morning. So contrasting policymakers that are immediate, problem-driven, solutions-focused, needing answers quickly with research, which is notoriously slow and deliberate. Indeed, one policymaker noted that a legitimate and pragmatic reason that academic research is sometimes not used in policy development uh, is time. Policymakers might well have to rely on what's already available if the time frame means that collection of new data is unfeasible. And these different perceptions of time are also apparent in the time frame of academic careers, which are ordinarily long and relatively, relatively stable, 
They contrast this with the constant moving around of policymakers and policy influencers within their organisations, which makes it more difficult to sustain and establish the longer-term relationships and networks with key, uh, key actors in the policy arena. So as key contacts move on, researchers can experience a loss of power and influence and might well start to again develop their contact base. This means that a major part of engagement with the policy-making process is through the development and maintenance of contacts who can then give access to the policy network. And here, intermediaries are uh, immensely helpful. Intermediaries such as think tanks, learning societies, funding bodies, mission groups and action groups is more permanent and sometimes, it's funny, isn't it? This is my phone and this is just because I said <laughs> my phone never rings. <laughs> just as Scott's phone never rings. So there you go. Somebody wanted policy advice. <laughs> I'm a go-to person now. <laughs> no, you didn't answer. <laughs> so intermediaries, you can play a very useful structured role in negotiating connections between policy-making stages, evident bases, and established higher, ex uh, higher education research expertise. So there's a central core of network actors um, some of these players have statutory duties and some have firm to be consulted with by law. Now this network is relatively stable. As one interview said, the big boys don't change. Though the power of those on the periphery of the core might wax and wane. So other players may be introduced as necessary um, based on the content of the policy or indeed significant shifts in context that bring other actors and institutions to the forefront of the policy process. So there seems to be an understanding of a permanent and powerful network with a core that is largely government players. Connections are based on both personal relationships and institutions, but it's the institutions that provide that network stability. That moves me on to where you are. Now in terms of influence in the networks, the researchers interviewed recognised the power of Oxbridge. And there are many reasons as to why this might be the case, I don't need to talk about them here, but one particularly relevant rationale is that of the old boy network. So many civil servants and ministers have attended these institutions themselves, so they're more likely to gravitate, gravitate towards those who've been there as well. Now other prestigious universities do benefit from that positional power as well, meaning that there can be what could be seen as a closed shop in terms of policy influence. And some higher education institutions can even be detrimental themselves to the policy process. So if the research doesn't support their own institutional position, they might well close in to protect themselves. So here the power of institutional autonomy is important and can explain some of the differences perhaps between policy making in the compulsory education sector and in the higher education sector. Having said that, um, interviewees did feel that there was space for different kinds of institutional involvement. So for those involved in widening access research, for example, sitting in a post-1992 university was not necessarily seen as a disadvantage, in fact it can be advantageous. And finally, some research centres were seen as important and influential. So investment um, in research to inform policy is likely to position those centres as hubs of influence. Now, geographically, location was also deemed important. So the pull of London is strong, which is why we're here, and not in Loughborough. <laughs> um, so meetings, events, conferences um, in London are more likely to attract policymakers or influencers. Squeezes on government budgets means that um, some non-London departments are closing and many civil servants just simply don't have the funds to travel that far outside of the capital. 
And clearly convenience is key as well, so the 4pm seminars in London can be popular. But this doesn't mean that higher education researchers who are outside of London are automatically excluded. That's not the case at all, but they need to accept that they probably will have to travel to London quite frequently. And unfortunately, this isn't something that their institutions always recognise. As one said, our research is not properly funded, let alone our impact work. So I mean, though it does annoy me, I sometimes pay for stuff up out of my own pocket to go to policy events. And finally, and this came up this morning as well, it's worth noting the serendipity of influence. There is something about being in the right place at the right time. I'm sure that luck's got a big part of it, one researcher said. And then finally, we're going to talk about who you are. And what comes across in the researcher interviews particularly was the importance of the individual and the individual's experience over their specific research outputs. Now, research is cumulative and it's a body of knowledge rather than individual projects per se that will influence the policy process. Now, in many cases, it's when higher education researchers are perceived to be the go-to person that they are likely to have more influence. And policymakers could name specific higher education researchers that they felt were important for policymaking. As policymakers said, you become a face within the network, and it does happen. There's quite a few people who are considered to be policy influencers coming from an academic perspective, but there needs to be more, and there, sh there can be more. So their engagement was on the basis of their expertise and its relation to specific aspects of policy. They were positioned as experts in particular areas. The route to this positioning is not totally clear-cut, and it can be influenced by many factors that we've already mentioned, so the relevance of the research ideas at the time, the kinds of research they do, how that research is communicated, where they are located, can all impact on their entry into the policy network. Other potential influential factors related to the individual's personal characteristics, so their gender, ethnicity, social class, age, with one researcher interviewee recognising that a mid-40s white male from a prestigious university might well be deemed to be more influential than a young black woman from a former poly. So in terms of gaining academic authority rather than positional power, so power based on status within the institution, one thing that the researchers did agree on was the, in order to have influence, they needed to be seen as credible academics. They needed to have academic kudos. And this means the formal development of a reputation through research and publication so while policymakers might not read the academic journals, they do recognise the importance of the peer review process in demonstrating academic credibility. So for researchers in the, latter, well, the later stages of their careers, this wasn't a major issue because they had the list of publications and arguably um, more time, though there are certain emeritus professors here who would say they don't have more time at <laughs> this stage of their career, with less institutional commitments to respond to the policymakers' requests. For new and mid-career academics, this was more problematic. Now, new academics are often not sufficiently connected, nor do they have the body of work to support their claims to be taken seriously in the policy process. And the mid-career academics uh, researchers spoke, um, spoke about working with two hats on um, and the difficulties of finding time to write up commissioned work for academic publication, which is how they are judged within the ac academic sphere, or to recast their policy-focused research for an academic audience. There was still a feeling that policy work was not always valued within, academic, uh, with ac within academia, that applied research is somehow not as worthy as pure research. Now, it might be that the impact case studies for the REF that we mentioned earlier could change that. 
As one interviewee noted, there's other kinds of impact, but policy impact is the easiest one to prove. But not that easy, I don't think. Because it's very difficult sometimes to entangle specifically where impact happens. And tracking impact, as one of our interviewees said, um, can be a job in itself. It could be, however, that um, the status of policy-focused research and applied research more generally increases as we move towards REF 2020. And there are likely to always be those academics who don't want to be engaged in the policy process, seeing it as somewhat unclean. Ideologically, some academics feel they can't engage with particular governments, and equally some policymakers won't engage with certain academics as they are, as a policymaker noted, only interested in beating an ideological drum which makes it, their academic research, very easy for a policymaker to ignore. Indeed, one concern about higher education researchers generally, and I think William talked about this as well, as expressed by um, policymakers, is that they are too close to, the, to their sector and its organisation. In some senses, higher education research and their researchers were argued to bring legitimacy by independence and objectivity, but on the other hand, they were criticised for being intransigent, resistant to change and protective of their own interests. So higher education researchers are, often, are also seen as being guilty of being risk-averse and thus in opposition to radical ideas. So as one policymaker commented, it's an odd situation where the people doing the research are also affected so closely by the outcome because it's part of their own sphere and it's perhaps often difficult to detach in the minds of the government the views that are being given by academic researchers from their perceptions about their own jobs and how that's changed over time. And I think there's an additional challenge for higher education researchers, as a policymaker also noted, everyone who works in or has studied within a higher education institution thinks that they're an expert in higher education. So higher education researchers need to compete against powerful actors and their anecdotes anecdotes again when I was at university, and academics with authority, either research or positional, who carry that authority across um, into areas they know little about. So there's clearly much for us to be cognizant of and much for us as a community to consider.